it, it is a, an, a delight and an honor to have you here. So I need your help on something. If you're on the internet, I need your help on something. In next Sunday, it starts for some spring break. And that... <laughs> and that's a delightful time <laughs> that makes us want to shout with joy. But because it means that we'll have a chance to go to church anyway. The two of the most, no, not most, least, two of the least attended Sundays are those that are right before and right after spring break. And and I don't want you to miss, especially March 15th, because I get to preach in the main service. And so you got to like show up or it's going to be me talking to Becky and mom and they've heard everything that I've got and it's just going nowhere. No, seriously, it, during spring break, it's a great time if you know people are coming into town for you to invite them to come and we'll try and make sure that the lessons are, are ones that, that won't embarrass you to bring people to. So we'll do the best we can. But within the framework of that, today can be very embarrassing because it's not spring break. Today we're in part four and we're finally going to finish the, the passages worth the dig. This is Romans 1, 16 and 17. Those two verses uh, we've spent now four sessions on. Is my older sister Catherine here today or she's teaching the two-year-olds? I think she teaches them. Well, when we were growing up, we used to get these little paint-by-number kits. And did y'all do that? I know that our daughter Rachel has a, not paint, it's, it's magic marker by number, this massive thing on her wall. And we should not tell anyone except the internet that uh, uh, she's got this massive thing on her wall. And, and when she's on really boring conference calls, she'll color it in. And she learned that from another lawyer named Jane Conroy. And it's a really good trick. I don't do that because I'm not really the artistic type, you'll be able to tell by what's going on behind me. I had trouble painting in the lines. But one of the things that does uh, thrill me about these paint by numbers is that you don't always know really what the picture is going to be until you fill in all of the numbers. You can't just do the orange. You can't just do the yellow. I mean, you can think, oh, yellows are likely bananas once you start figuring out it's a fruit bowl. But you've got to kind of fill in all of the different numbers if you're going to know what it is. And that's the way with a lot of things that we approach in life. It's certainly the way of a Bible passage like Romans 1, 16 and 17. There are lots of parts to that passage. And we've spent multiple Sundays studying different words in different parts of the passage to then try and put it together. Remember, Romans 1, 16 and 17 are the theme verses for the entire book of Romans. So within that theme, we've broken it apart already. We've already looked at various words. But we've got one more word we need to consider. And then we'll have the entire fruit bowl in front of us and we can enjoy it for the fullness of the picture. Look again at the passage. Here's the word that we're, we're looking for. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, gospel for Paul, you'll recall, if you were not in this class, 
got my friend Eric Holland visiting from St. Louis, and uh, he, he was not in the class, though he's read the material. Um, uh, gospel, when Paul uses that word, is, is referencing a historic event of great importance to all of us. When Paul says gospel, he's talking about the great news that Jesus Christ died the death we should have died. He died on our behalf for our sins. That's the great news. So Paul says, it doesn't shame me that Jesus has died for my sins. Jesus dying for sins is God's power to save everyone who believes. Jew first, also the Greek. For in it, in the death of Christ on the cross, God's righteousness is revealed. We looked at righteousness, that Greek word dikaiosune. It means that God has declared us not guilty. In the great cosmic courtroom, the final and ultimate judge has said, those for whom Christ paid the penalty on the cross for their sins are not guilty. They are righteous from faith to faith. As it's written, the righteous, those not guilty, live by faith. Now the word that we've not touched, that we need to finish to make our fruit bowl completely painted in, is the word faith. And if you were to put faith on a shelf and look at the things that surround faith, in history and in philosophy and in theology, there are a number of things that are up there on the shelf with faith that are worthy of our attention. I want to especially look at three today. I want to look at a Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard. He lived in the early to mid-1800s, and he had a lot to say about the issue of faith. In addition to Kierkegaard, I want us to consider Martin Luther. Martin Luther lived in the early 1500s, late 14, early 1500s, and had a lot to say about faith. And then third, I want to talk to you about a gentleman that doesn't get as much attention, but if I tell you the truth, he may be my favorite Christian author of all time outside the Bible. His name is Philip Melanchthon, and we'll talk about him today as well. But let's begin with dear Soren Kierkegaard. Now, Soren, that's the statute of him that's up in uh, Denmark, uh, Copenhagen. Uh, Soren, bless his heart, is dead. Now, I don't like to speak ill of the dead. It's just a general rule. Not that I believe they can come back and haunt me, but I just don't want to do it just in case. No, I'm joking. I, I, you just, they can't defend themselves. Doesn't seem fair to me to speak ill of the dead. I'm about to speak ill of Soren Kierkegaard. So before I do that, I'd like to cut him some slack, okay? First of all, 
1813 to 1855. That means he was around 42 when he died. How many of you are younger than 42? We have an old class. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. Um, <laughs> we have a few, okay? And we have tons on the internet, I have no doubt. Here's the deal. By the time you're 42, you haven't necessarily gelled with all of your ideas yet, even though I longed to be a teenager again, because when I was a teenager, I knew everything. But now, or at least mom says I thought I did. But now that I've grown up, I've realized that, that, that I've changed in my understanding over the years. And so it's fair to cut him some slack because he, he, everything we're going to talk about him saying, he said before he was 42. I also want to cut him some slack because he grew up in a really tough home. His mother died young and his father was a bit of, um, I would say weirdo, but I don't like to speak ill of the dead and his dad's dead too. Let's just say he was unusual. His dad was a preacher by trade, but in his older years had Soren. So Soren had like his brother Peter was, I don't know, 10 or plus years older than, than Soren was. Soren's dad, by the time Soren shows up, is really not as active and, and he's, he's not, you know, Soren would come in, dad, can I go outside and play? Dad would say, no, 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 no. Instead, while I'm sitting here in my chair, let's you and I go for a walk together. Now, you might be thinking, how do you go for a walk with Dad sitting in his chair? The answer was, inside the house, Dad would hold Soren's hand so that Soren could take two steps forward and two steps back, and they would describe everything they were seeing down to the way it smelled. Now, that might be fun once or twice, but at some point, a kid needs to go outside and play, not play in make-believe land with holding dad's hand on the street. So there's a weird upbringing, I guess is what I'm saying. And his brother was a bit of a, an intellectual bully to him, uh, his brother Peter. And, and Soren grew up with a bit of a smart-alecky attitude. So... I cut him some slack. By the way, a lot of what we read on Soren Kierkegaard is not stuff where he said, here, I'm going to write this book. I want you to read it so you know what I believe. A lot of it just comes from his papers that were never meant to be published. A lot of it comes from some writings he did under a false name, a pseudonym, John Climacus. And so it allows scholars to say, well, John Climacus said this, but was that Soren saying it or so, because Soren believed it or was Soren exploring the idea through a pseudonym, a fake name? If you ever want to read his papers, there's like six volumes of them in your local neighborhood theological library that you can certainly go get. I'm not sure it's worth the time. I'll readily confess to you I've not read every page of every volume of that. But I will tell you, 
While Soren Kierkegaard did not coin the phrase I'm about to use, Soren Kierkegaard is responsible for this concept as we have seen it really integrate, I believe, into philosophy today and into our culture. Soren Kierkegaard is associated with the idea that, that faith is a blind leap off of a cliff. That faith is, I don't know what there is beyond this edge, but I am going to boldly and blindly just step off the cliff and hope someone or something is there to catch me. And this idea of a blind leap of faith is something that is still used today in matters religious with a lot of different people. A lot of people believe faith is just, I'm going to blindly step off and hope and pray that God or someone is there to catch me. I can't have a reason for this. This isn't logical, but it's something I'm going to do anyway. Now, some of you went to college and studied useless things like I did. By that, I mean the humanities, um, social, uh, you know, one of my favorite classes in college was history of British civilization from 1867 to present. Well, that's not real practically helpful, but boy, I just loved it. So I don't know, how, how many of you took classes like that? Or in your hobby time, maybe you didn't go to college, you read books like that. Okay. Well, for those of us who spent time doing that, let's put this into another context as well. Not just Soren Kierkegaard's family context, but the context of history. You'll recall Jesus dies, the church is part of uh, fighting against the Roman Empire, then becomes part of the Roman Empire, then the Roman Empire disintegrates. We're in the 400s at this point, and, and culture and society basically enters the Dark Ages. Now that's not fair to say for everything. There's certainly the, the uh, Muslim uh, Islamic uh, issues that came up. In the 500s and 600s, you've got that fighting against uh, the Greek orthodoxy going on over in the Turkish areas now. But, but by and large, you've got what Western civilization calls the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages. They're in the middle between the civilization that was there with Rome and the civilization that has risen since. So on this timeline of the Middle Ages, around 1450 is when I start marking out the Renaissance because 1450 is the year Gutenberg did the movable print press. And that radically transformed Western civilization. All of a sudden, illiteracy goes from massive to minor within a generation because there's readily available print media. It's worth learning how to read if there's something to read. And so you've got people learn how to read. And once you learn how to read, your brain starts working differently and you can process more abstract thought. And so you've got what's called the Age of Enlightenment by what a lot of people accord 1687. The magic of that date 
That's the date when Sir Isaac Newton published his principles of mathematics, where he could finally explain, which is pretty amazing when you consider he's working without a computer or a calculator or even an iPhone. But he figures out and calculates how you can determine the force of gravity based on the apple falling to the ground. Who to thunk? Isaac Newton. And so Isaac Newton thinks this through and he publishes his principles of mathematics and we've got calculus and we've got all of this stuff and it opens up people's minds so that they're able to learn things and right on the heels of it, you've got not just this age of enlightenment, but somewhere between the 1760s and the 1820s, you've got the start of the industrial revolution. And people have figured out how to take that that enlightenment logic and rationality and turn it into something pragmatic. Where if I want a, a new sweater and mom's going to knit me a sweater, we don't have to go out there and shear the sheep and then take the sheep and spin the yarn, dye the yarn, and then have mom knit the sweater. Instead, there are massive clothing mills where this stuff's being done on a large scale. And the Cotswolds in England spring up because you've got the water sources that are turning the wheels, because they don't have electricity yet, turning the wheels that are causing industry to thrive. And with that comes urbanization. People are moving to be close to the mills and places where they're working. I'm just giving you how society develops. Now, there was a problem with that. There was a rebellion against the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment that said things are logical and rational. And Rene Descartes says you can reason your way to God and reason your way to faith. And John Locke teaches that you can actually use evidence to make decisions. And the rebellion came in what's been called the age of romanticism. The age of romanticism said enough with all of this logic and rationality. Real meaning in life is not found by moving to the cities and slaving away at the products of this. Real meaning in life is found in emotion feelings, intuition. Don't lean on logic. Lean on your gut. And no, not lean on your gut that way. Lean on, lean on, you know, rely on your gut. And that's where Soren Kierkegaard comes in. He's part of the romantic movement that's rebelling against the logic and rationality that's created urban sprawl and everything else. And so now Soren Kierkegaard comes and Soren Kierkegaard applies the romantic concepts to philosophy and theology. And Soren Kierkegaard says that faith is belief in the absurd, the unbelievable. Faith is not the product of rational thought. In fact, Kierkegaard goes so far as to say, if your faith is the product of rational thought, it's not real genuine faith. Real genuine faith isn't based on rationally believing it to be true. It's just based on accepting it from God. 
with no rationality at all. It's an absurdity that you choose to believe. One of the clearest ways to illustrate a difference between Kierkegaardian faith and logic and reason that says let's find evidence for what we believe is found in Hollywood. (laughs) Miracle on 34th Street, a movie that's been made multiple times. In the original, sorry, Maureen O'Hara and John Payne, the plot is laid out. There's a bum on the streets of New York named Chris Kringle, and he gets basically set up at Macy's to be the Santa Claus seasonal Santa Claus for Macy's. And a girl finds him and believes in him, and and there's fussing about gimbals and Macy's and all of these subplots going on. But by the end of the movie, the question is, is this Chris fella really Santa Claus or not? He claims to be. If he is, then God bless him, go out there and be Santa Claus. If he's not, then he's going to the uh, psych ward because he's non-compass mentis, not mentally competent. And so he's on trial. And the judge, the judge wants to say he's Santa Claus, but the judge says... You know, there's no evidence he's Santa Claus. I can't have the integrity of a judge. And, and you, you just get the feeling the judge is just about to rule against him when the cute little girl takes the Christmas card up to give to the judge. And the judge opens the Christmas card and he sees the dollar bill inside the Christmas card. And on the back of the dollar bill is circled, In God We Trust. Right? No. That's the different one. What happened in the first one is the post office has got all of these letters addressed to Santa Claus. And someone in the post office gets the bright idea, well, Chris Kringle says he's Santa Claus. Let's take him and give him to him. And so they dump all of those letters on Chris. And the judge says, hey, if the U.S. post office has said you're Santa Claus, that's evidence enough for this court. There is evidence you are Santa Claus. It's been recognized by the U.S. Post Office. Boom. And it works. Chris Kringle is Santa Claus. But not so on 34th Street, part two. In 1994, the movie gets remade, and it's not the post office this time. It's not, gee, here's a whole bunch of letters showing Chris Kringle is Santa Claus. This is the one where the little girl does go to the judge and give him the Christmas card and he opens it up and there's the dollar bill and on the back is circled in God we trust. And the judge says, if the U.S. Treasury Department can believe in God when there's no evidence of God, I can believe in Santa Claus. And there is a blind leap of Kierkegaardian proportions that is expressed in that movie. The idea being people who believe in God believe for no reason at all. They just blindly accept it. So on that same basis, I'll accept that Kris Kringle is Santa Claus. There's as much validity in the two. 
according to the movie. So is, this is a good example of the different ways of seeing this. Is the decision based on evidence or is the decision without evidence? That's what Kierkegaard has injected into our system today. Now, I put Martin Luther on the shelf as well. What about Martin Luther? I, I, I don't have a lot of dings to say about Martin Luther, but I do have a little small ding. Luther was absolutely brilliant on understanding that we are saved by faith alone, that, that it is faith that gives us the access to the cross of Christ on our behalf. Luther explained that. Luther used Paul's letter to the Romans to great end with that. But Luther then turns to, to, to James, the book of James, and Luther's like, James indicates something different. James seems to indicate that you're not saved by faith alone. If we go to James, James says, you see a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That a person is, this is dikaiosune, a person is declared righteous. A person is made righteous, not by faith alone, but by works, by what you do to earn it. And so Luther's very upset about this. Luther doesn't understand that this is you see, or uh-oh in the Greek, you see by your eyes. You know, it's, 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 it's like this. Mel's down here on the front row. If I said to Mel, Mel, I would like you to look and see my faith. See the faith in my heart. Well, Mel doesn't have x-ray vision to get past my rib cage. And if he did, he'd just see this kind of purplish thing going bloom, 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 bloom. And the idea of there being faith is not something he can see. God can see our hearts, but he can't. So he's going to be able to see my right standing before God, not just by my faith, but he will see it by what I do. Jesus said the same thing, by their fruits you shall know them. That's how we see things. We see things by that. That's our evidence. That's our thermometer. We know it's hot because we look at the thermometer and it says 100 degrees. Now, the thermometer saying 100 degrees is not what made it hot. But it's how we know it's hot because that's what we can see. So Luther doesn't get that. If we go back to the PowerPoint, Luther reads James and he's just all upset. When he, Luther translated the Bible into German, he bumps James to the end of the Bible. Takes it out of order, puts it at the end, says, I'm almost not even going to put it in here. He calls James an epistle of straw. So Luther's got a, a, maybe the right idea of what faith is, but a limited idea of, of what James was saying in his book. Now, we're going to pause. We've got 20, 
to 20, well, we got 25 minutes left in class. Now, if that makes you moan and groan because you're thinking, I can't stand it that much longer, I'm sorry. <laughs> you, can, you can quietly leave. But with 25 minutes, we have time for a language lesson, which I just can't pass up because ultimately I am a language nerd. So I've got... Where am I? Ah, Charles Cross and family, our French missionaries. French, a marvelous language. A language that is a romance language, not just in the sense of French or romantic, but in the sense of the Roman heritage language, Latin. Spanish is a romance language. Romance languages are those languages that have descended by the language tree from Rome. English has elements of Roman languages and Latin languages in it, especially French. But English also has a Celtic origin and a German origin to it very different than the Roman origin. So English is kind of a conglomeration. It's the Heinz 57 with 57 varieties of languages that make it up. Now, interestingly enough, some of the French words that we have in our language have given us extra vocabulary. So when William of Normandy invaded England. The Norman invasion was 1066. Normandy is northern France. So he comes from northern France across the English Channel and he conquers England. And so the throne is inhabited by Normans. And while English is the common language, French is actually spoken for several hundred years in the court. Of, of England. And when the French came in, they brought their vocabulary. It's especially noticeable in food. So you got farmers who are out there, and the farmers are just farming the same animals they always farmed. And so that pink thing with the curly tail that goes oink, 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 if it's a baby, it was called a pig from the German bigot. And so the pig, or the big, is the baby, oink, oink. And when they get to be bigger, oink, oinks, they were called swine. From the German word for swine. So you've got nice English from German words for the pink things with the curly tails that go oink, oink. Pig and swine. And then along come the French. And they've got this really good dish. And this really good dish is named after the French word, which comes from the Latin word for the little pink thing that goes oink, oink. Porcus. And hence, once it's cooked, you can call it a pork chop or a pork roast. Because the French brought it over and it was a porcus to them, not a pig. 
And so today, you don't go into a restaurant and say, I'm going to have the pig chop. (laughs) I'll have the pig. The way, ah, you mean the pork chop. Because we use the cooking word. You don't go into a restaurant and order uh, sheep. Um, I'm going to have the sheep. You order mutton. You, you order, the, 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 the words have a distinction. You following me? You tracking with me? It's a light moment, yet it's an important moment in the development of languages. Why is it important? Because it's the same way, the way our Bibles translate the Greek. The key Greek word that we're to look at today is formed off of a root of pi, iota, sigma, tau, pist, pist. Pist. That's the root. And if at the end of that root you add letters that make it a noun, you can have pistis. And when it's a noun, most of the time it's translated as faith. But that exact same Greek root word, if instead of putting an iota sigma at the end, you put an epsilon, upsilon, uh, omega. You make it pistuo. You've just turned it into a verb. But we don't really have a verb, faith. Because faith comes from the Latin, fide, but we do have a verb we got from the German part of our language. It's believe. So in our Bible, when we read the verb believe in the Greek New Testament, it's almost always the exact same word as what we read with faith. It's just the verb form instead of the noun. You with me? So if you look at this passage that we're looking at today, Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's pissed, pistuo. That's just it in a verb form. But that's the word faith in a verb form. To everyone who has faith or who is faithing. To the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith. As it's written the righteous will live by faith. Faith is used four times in that word. Though you only see it translated as faith three times. But it shows you how important the word is if we're going to understand this passage. I mean, come on, look at that. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. In it, the righteousness of God's revealed from faith, for faith. The righteous are living by faith. If faith is, is some security bridge that links me to salvation, I'd like to know what Paul means by faith. And so in the last few minutes of class, I'd like to explore that with you, but we're going to do it on a Socratic method. By that it means I'm going to ask questions, but don't worry, you don't get to answer them. I will answer them for you, because this is too big a class otherwise. But I think asking the questions helps us better understand part of the answer. Question number one. Does faith 
require knowledge of content? Do I need to know what it is I'm believing? Well, I think the answer is yes. I know, I know. Absolutely yes. Biblical faith does require knowledge of content. But let me show you some passages to help you understand. The first one we're going to look at is in John 9. Now in John 9, Jesus has found a man who was born blind. Jesus heals the man, tells him to go show himself to the authorities. The man goes to the synagogue and they say, hey, you're supposed to be blind. I know, but I can see now. Well, how'd this come about? Well, Jesus healed me. Who's Jesus? Oh, I don't know exactly, but he's a prophet. No, denounce him. Say he's not a prophet. I mean, God healed you. And we know that that man's a sinner. And God doesn't listen to the prayers of sinners. So God must not have listened to his prayer. God just healed you on his own. Denounce him. And the man won't denounce Jesus. And, and, and so the rulers kicked the man out of the synagogue. And so Jesus hears about that, and Jesus goes to find the man and to talk to him. And that gets us to the John 9 passage. So in John 9, at this point we're at about 35, verse 35. And Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe, believe, that's the verb form of what word? Faith, pissed. Do you believe in the Son of Man? The, the, the blind now seeing man said and answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? I need content before I can believe. I need to know who it is. Before I can have faith, before I can trust, I need to know who it is that I'm supposed to be trusting. A second passage, I'll put it on the PowerPoint real quick, is Psalm 9 verse 10. I use this passage a lot to teach what the Hebrew and Greek idea of name is. So you've heard me use it before in this class, but I want to use it in a different sense now. John, uh, uh, Psalm 9, verse 10. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Those who know your name put their trust in their faith in you. Those who know your name. Now, name was not simply a label. Name, Shem in Hebrew, meant who you were, what you'd done. It was your CV. It was your, it was, it was your resume. It was your credentials. And, 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 it was the content of the person. And so the psalmist is saying, those who know the content of who you are, God, 
are the ones who put their trust in you. Those who know that you are a stronghold for the oppressed, that you stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves, that you help the helpless, that those who seek you, you don't forsake them. You show yourself to them and you're there for them. That those who desperately need you when they're going about to do their brother's funeral, know that you will be there. That those who are struggling to figure out why they're so alone, know that you will comfort the widow. You will comfort the or- orphan. You are the husband to the widow. You are the one who is the rock in the midst of shifting sand. You are the answers. You are the way, the truth, the life. If people know that of God, then knowing the content, they'll trust him. That's what the psalmist say. So we go back to the question in the PowerPoint. Does faith require knowledge of content? Biblical faith? Absolutely so. Question number two. Is biblical faith based on evidence. With due respect to Soren Kierkegaard, absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. Rick and I were having a conversation this week about how the New Testament is a Jewish collection of writings, and it is, by and large. The Jewish concept was never one of blindly believe. In a Jewish court, you had to have the testimony of multiple witnesses to convict someone. There had to be evidence. Jesus didn't come and say, hey, just believe in me. One of the main reasons in his compassion, he healed and performed miracles and gave that ability to his apostles was to bear witness to his testimony so that people would have a basis for believing. In Luke 16, verse 10. In John 20, verse 27. In Matthew 5, 17. In all of these passages, you find Jesus giving reasons for people to believe. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Don't think I came to destroy the Torah and the prophets. I didn't. I came to fulfill them. Not one jot or tittle will pass away from them before the the, the end of age. Jesus is saying, I didn't come and tell you, hey, just believe in me instead of everything else. Why? Because it feels good in your tummy. Because you've intuited it. Because it doesn't make sense. So it must be a good thing to do. Embrace the absurd. Leap off the cliff. See if you won't be caught. No. Jesus says, study the scriptures and see how I fulfill those scriptures. You use your brain and see. Do it prayerfully. Pray for God's insight. But this is never one of just believe. If you look at 1 Peter 3.15, 
Peter tells his readers a passage that's familiar with many of you, but not everybody. So we're going to look at it. It's a very important passage. Peter says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason that the hope, for the hope that is in you. Always being prepared to make a defense. That defense is not, it's irrational, but just believe it. Blindly jump off the cliff. It's not. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, is biblical faith based on evidence? Yes, it is. Question number three. What gives value? What gives validity to our faith? Why is our faith of any merit? Why does our faith matter? The answer's wrapped up in the passages I've already shown you with a few more. It matters because it's objective reality. It's true. It's historical. It's for real. It's not make-believe. Jesus really was God in human form. Jesus really did die on the cross. He really did take mine and yours sins upon himself, as the prophet Isaiah said. Our iniquity was laid upon him, the prophet wrote. By his stripes, by his cuts, by his injuries, are we healed. This was not make-believe. This was not fantasy. This was not anything less than reality. This is why in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says to the, to the um, Corinthians, he says, brothers and sisters, I'll remind you in what terms I preach the gospel to you. Let's go to the Elmo, please, or to the Ipivo. I've put this up wrong almost, but we do still welcome you to class. We really want to emphasize that. And if you have a visitor near you, please alert an usher. Now, that's out of the way, literally. Let's go to this. Paul says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. By the way, I tease, but our AV people do an amazing job. And we just need to thank them. Look, we don't get in here and practice this. They got no clue when I'm going where and what I'm doing. They're having to guess. They're having to get in my brain. They're doing a tremendous job. Not to mention then they got to execute with all those switches. So I tease them, but, but only with love. Um, now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Remember, that's the death of Christ for your sins that I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you're saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless... Your pestuo, your belief, your faith is fake. It's not real. It's in vain. I delivered to you, first importance, what I also received. Christ died for our sins. This is a truth. This is objective reality. This is real. In accordance with scriptures. 
He was buried, raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. Then, this is how real it was. He appeared to Cephas. That's Peter's Aramaic name. Then he appeared to the 12 apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 people at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. But you can go check it out and ask them. Cross-examine them. Then he appeared to James. Then he appeared to all the apostles. And last, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Paul says, check it out. There's evidence behind this. We do want to urge everyone to understand that if you're a visitor, we welcome you to class. (laughs) And uh, uh, if you've got a visitor near you, alert an usher. Now, I'm not going to go over to the Elmo on this one, but trust me, John 20 verse 30 says the following. John at the end of his gospel said, Jesus did many more signs than these. If I was to write all of them down, a book wouldn't hold it. A scroll wouldn't hold it. A scroll could only be, I don't know, 20 some odd feet long. He said, but these have been written so that you may believe. What's that word mean? It's the verb of pistuo, faith. So that you might have faith. I wrote down all of these things that Jesus did so you might have faith. To inform your faith. To give you reasons to believe. This is not just some blind thing. Okay, then the question becomes obvious. What's the chief hindrance to faith? Well, there are a number of them. But I want to tell you two that really stand out to me. One is emotional. Uh, Rick and I were discussing this the other day. How many Jewish people do not believe in God because of the Holocaust. Here you've got six to seven million Jews at a minimum that were destroyed and killed. And the question becomes, if there's a God, how could he let that happen? And that disguises itself as rationality because it disguises itself as explain to me how that could happen if there's a God. And yet... Most of those people don't believe in God, never having explored truly the answers to the question. How could that happen? Huge questions, very important questions, big answers, but they don't explore those because they've just got the emotional reaction. One of the most prominent atheists that writes in Christian circles today says he was nominally a Christian until God let something tragic happen in his life. It's an emotional thing. But I'll go a step further and tell you that it's also an unwillingness to do what will happen if you accept Jesus as the Messiah. In John seven seventeen, Jesus made it clear, if you are willing... You can believe. If if you're not willing, John Stott told the story about a fellow who came up to him. The fellow said, well, I don't believe in God. Stott said, "Um, 
Now, is it true you're like running around on your wife? I was, uh, yeah. So I said, are you willing to give that up if God is real? I said, no. An unwillingness to do what is required of you in a sense. What faith will move you to do. An unwillingness to do that is, is, is as stark an impediment to believing as there can be. So if that's true, then where does that leave us with biblical faith? It leaves us with my buddy Melanchthon. Melanchthon was recruited by Luther. Okay, I'm out of time. I'm sorry. Can I go four more minutes? I really have like a five-minute leeway. Okay, thank you. We'll still make the restaurant. Um, Melanchthon was recruited by Luther at the University of Wittenberg, where Luther was a professor. Melanchthon was recruited to teach Greek there. He was about 10, 12, 13 years younger than Luther. But he walked right with Luther down the Reformation Highway and had, I'm telling you, my favorite Christian writer outside of the Bible. So I want you to look at one of his writings, his Loki Loki Communes Theologici Reckons Collecti and Recogniti a Filippo Melanchthon. He wrote in Latin. And if you were reading this in Latin, this is his dissertation on some of these issues and talking about faith. And he says, biblical faith has notitia, it's got a census, and it's got fiducia. Now, because he's writing in Latin, and I've given you way too much English so far, or foreign language so far today for one class, I'm not going to do that to you. So instead, I'll put it into English. Notitia is the Latin word that, that references this practical knowledge, understanding. It's what you've got in your head. It's, it's content. Biblical faith in, 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 has an element of content. I know. I know. Notitia. Second is a census. A census is a Latin word that references an agreement, an approval. I'm persuaded of this. I'm on this. Yes. All right. You see, you can have notitia. You can have knowledge and not agree and approve and, and be persuaded by it. That's what James is saying. James says, even the demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and they shudder. But they're not approving of it. They're not persuaded by it in a way that affects who they are. You can know it, but if you're not agreeing with it and approving of it, you're not biblical faith. And there's a third element of biblical faith, fiducia. Fiducia, uh, the, the Latin verb or noun for that is fides. Fiducia is trust, reliance. And that's part of, in fact, you can translate pissed, not just as faith, you can translate it as trust. It's a reliance. And what faith winds up being and what all of this is in Romans 1, 16 and 17, when you put the entire fruit bowl together, are the lyrics to one of my favorite hymns. 
I know a, sen- uh, 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 a census. Yeah, no, 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 notidia, excuse me. I know notidia whom I have believed and am persuaded a census that he is able to keep that I've committed to him, fiducia, until that day. That's what Paul is saying. So in conclusion, Paul, I'm not ashamed of the fact that Jesus Christ died for my sins. That's God's power to save everyone who knows it and agrees with it and entrusts themselves to it. Jew and Greek. In the death of Christ, God's righteousness is revealed from faith, from trust and knowledge and conviction to trust and knowledge and conviction because we live knowing it, believing and approving in it and convicted that it's true, trusting in it. And that is what the whole book of Romans is about. Can I bless you in the name of Jesus? Father, thank you for the chance to proclaim your gospel. What a blessing. Father, I just affirm my faith in, in, in Christ right now. I affirm an understanding that he died for me. And my deep approval and appreciation and gratitude with that. And Lord, may I trust in nothing less than Jesus and his blood and righteousness as I talk to you directly, the God of all, through Jesus' righteousness. I come to you and I, I live for you. Amen.